I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jeremy Scheinwald with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Um, this episode, and this is actually a coincidence, it's not going to seem like it, but it's actually a coincidence, is brought to you by Squarespace. Um, start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code SMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The reason why I say it's going to seem like uh, it's not a coincidence is because we have Dane Atkinson on the, Dane Atkinson on the show today. And uh, I'll read you his bio, and you'll start to, you'll start to, to get that coincidence pretty quickly. Um, but Dane was actually referred to me via a friend, uh, not through Squarespace. Um, so I could read Dane's whole bio. I tried to condense it um, because it could take up the entire show. Like Dane is probably the most the most vastly experienced entrepreneur we've had on the show. He started, advised, led, bought, and chaired like. I don't know, a dozen? I mean, Dane's right here. More than a dozen? Two uh, dozen uh, yeah. startups? That's not necessarily a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. His career took, took off when he was a teenager. He was the COO of a company at the age of 18. Um, then at 18, he launched SenseNet, which grew to hundreds of employees on three, comp- on three continents and serviced Pfizer, WPP, and more. Um, Dane became the CEO of Squarespace, a position he held from 2007 to 2011, overseeing uh, the massive growth of the platform. He left Squarespace in 2011 to launch Sumall, a company which has sought to democratize data by developing a data analytics tool, which enables users to view 42 different platforms, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, etc., uh, with a simple uh, visualization tool. Um, Sumall has 233,000 users, has raised 14 million dollars, and has 36 employees. You're, you're, am I, are my numbers off? I got them from your website today. No, that's right. <laughs> Our website's uh, probably out of date as well. So okay. That. Dane has been in invited to the White House twice, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, to discuss um, his success at Sumall and entrepreneurship and more. Um, and Dane, before we start, my good friend uh, Eric Schrader, who runs Venwise, told me that I had to start the show by sending you his kisses. Oh, yeah. I feel him already. <laughs> uh, he got you on the show, so I feel like I kind of have to oblige with that, uh, that soft <laughs> opening. Um, so I was doing my research for the show, and I, I read uh, that you had, uh, to me, which would seem like a very formative experience. Um, uh, you're 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 put to work at a young age, which I can relate to. Um, you know, you were um, my parents forced me to get a paper route at the age of nine to pay for summer camp, or half of summer camp. Um, you graduated from dog walking at six or seven to running a subsidiary of Gray at eighteen. Um, yep. Can you tell me about that progression, and in particular? Like, how did you get the job as COO of a, a Gray? For those who don't know, is a major advertising firm, you know, global advertising firm right now. Um, how did you get that job, and how did you react when they offered it to you? Uh, well, so just to go back to the dog walking days, I think that um, my parents abused me to appreciate how much money was worth. So it, it was a nice spark to entrepreneurship. So when you worked out that you get 75 cents for about half an hour of walking a dog, which was some time ago, and now I think you make like $100 that same effort, um, it seemed like every entrepreneurial effort, whether it was, I think I rebuilt dollhouses, uh, I had a whole bunch of crazy ideas that didn't necessarily go anywhere, but they made more money than dog walking. Um, and I think that the first technology wave that I got to take advantage of was was this cycle called desktop publishing. It may be lost on the generation right now, but there was this period where everybody used to use old mechanical style ways to create electronic, uh, or not electronic, but print media in the advertising and sort of the Mad Men world. And the computers, when Apple came out, sort of enhanced that, and no one knew how to do it. So as a teenager, I think I was 13 when I got my first job um, doing desktop publishing, which was basically doing digital layouts. So I started working for ad agencies making like $25 an hour, which was exceptional <laughs> um, for a kid of that age. 
And uh, uh, by doing it well and being diligent, I eventually got the opportunity to run uh, a, a group inside of an ad agency, Gray, which is a gigantic, it was called Gray Direct, and it was Resolution. Um, and at the tender age of my teen years, had 30 or 40 employees uh, that were <laughs> working around the clock trying to make layouts for, you know, uh, Visa, MasterCard, all those kind of people. I mean, were you shocked when they said, we'd like you to become the COO? Or were you just like, yeah, I can do this? No, I, I don't think they actually wanted me to be the COO. It's just there was... Uh, <laughs> I was one of the few people that had the technology skills at the time and able to sort of pass that on and get people excited. I did everything wrong. Um, I was probably the worst person to run a group possible. And there was other management around, so it shouldn't be sound like I was the only person doing it. But because I was so instrumental, I guess, in building it, uh, they gifted me the uh, the title, and I was there all the time, so someone had to do that. <laughs> okay, I'm curious about what you I'm curious about what you did wrong, but I, I've got a great quote from you about what, what you did yeah. wrong coming up. Um, so... <laughs> but, are you like now? Are you now like the crotchety guys? Like back in my day, we had to you know walk dogs, and and kids these days don't get it. Or or uh, would, like, would you would you would you want your own kids to be to be working at the age of, of six seven? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that it might be hard culturally now. That's that's usually not the course that people seem to flow. I, I've got a couple of kids that are getting close to that age. Um, I do think that having an understanding of the real world economics are good, and appreciating your effort is a valuable skill to have. Uh, I think I'd have to just do it in a way that wasn't so obvious so the neighbors wouldn't be like, why is that kid scraping and painting that house every day? He's six. What's going on? <laughs> so uh, let's, let's talk. I, mean, I guess maybe I, you, you, I, I am at that point already. I, I'm, I'm curious. about. I read this quote from you. Um, so like you've got this vast number of startups, and it's a, it's a challenge to almost sort through um, the there's a diversity of them seemingly. Um, and uh, and I mean this like in a in a really complimentary way. It's like it's it's hard to Thanks. figure out what what happened, um, but um, what happened when and 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 what worked and what didn't. But so I'm going to read this lengthy quote from you, oh a boy. quote from from right. from none other than Dean Atkinson. Um, you told Business Insider quote A mistake people make is that they get overly attached to their first enterprise. The best me- the best method to grow as a human, or one of the best methods to be is, is to be an entrepreneur because you can't insulate yourself in the world. If you're failing, it's not because your manager didn't give you the right budget. It's because you suck. You just couldn't figure out how to make that business work. That's a, re- a very real mirror to fashion, a better version of yourself. Expect that it takes time. Expect that it takes several chapters. So your first chapter, I guess, as, as an entrepreneur was, was SenseNet. Is that right? Um, and, t- I mean, tell us about what SenseNet was, um, a little better than my intro, but also, like, what were you, what were, I'm assuming you're reflecting on yourself here. What was, yeah. what, was, what, was, what was it that you were so attached to at SenseNet that you wished you would have let, let go of? Uh, so I, I, I'm a big fan of that quote myself. I'll give myself some props. <laughs> um, no, I think that the, the entrepreneurship is a, is a very noble path for a human to take, and it really does. If you're looking at your path in life, it, it's a fantastic device to become more self-aware, if nothing else. Um, since that was my first real s- successful business with a lot of employees under it, and I think that the first time you birth a business, it is uh, it's a direct extension of your soul. Like you are you and the brand are synonymous, like it is, it is just exactly who you are. And it's, it's a hard thing to make decisions with some rationality and compassion for the people around you. So some of the mistakes I've definitely uh, hurt and felt over the years is, um, you know, I hoarded equity, not with intention, but with aspirations to do great things. And I'd want that equity to be, you know, a vehicle for changing the world um, to the deficit of the people around me. And I made a lot of mistakes uh, with those that helped me back then just because I, I couldn't realize where they contributed and, and how the real picture looked. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I do as much as I can to help founders and other folks in the ecosystem. And, and it's just it's just part of the natural course. That first time it comes out, you live and die by it. I think after you've done it a few times, uh, it's still a baby, but it, you understand that there has to be some detachment. You understand how everyone's involvement shares in that, that village of growth and how everybody has to participate in it. Um, those weren't final lessons, but they were good. Uh, so, uh, so, and and what what was what, what's the you know the two liner like? What was what was SenseNet? Uh, so, when SenseNet started, um, it was at the very outset of the internet, and no one had websites. So, I had an ad background and able to contact a lot of ad customers. So, we went out and basically built the first website for Sprint. 
sprintbiz.com was built by SenseNet back in the very day, which was all of like three pages of HTML. Um, and we grew out of that into a product company, uh, eventually making like an entire intranet, which is a term that's lost, but basically tools internal to the application, um, which ended up, you know, as I said, it, it was on a wave. It was a crazy wave, that wave that sort of crashed in 2001, um, but it was filled with a lot of lessons. And, and, and you were 18 when you started this? Like uh, Yeah, I was in my late teens. It was actually, it first started out as a bulletin board in my living room. Um, I had basically bribed, uh, I think it was Verizon at the time, or whatever the telco was, to put in phone lines. People would dial in in the sort of old sense to log into my first class bulletin board system. <laughs> uh, the first issue of Wired is actually an article about SenseNet being the uh, danger for AOL, that it'd wipe out AOL because it was so much better. Yeah, that didn't really work out that way. <laughs> but, um, that was a launch vehicle that I ended up making into the company. And I mean, were you? Was this something happened fortuitously? Were you? Were you venture backed? Were you bootstrapping? No, I went. I remember very specifically at that time. I went to the banks. I, I didn't even know VCs existed, and I asked them for money. And they looked at me and they're like, "Well, first off, you're a teenager. Second off, you say you can make an operating system on the web, and we don't know what the web is. And no, you can't have any money." <laughs> So uh, we quickly went back and figured out, okay, what can we do? Let's sell our services in the way that we had already done. And that was how we bootstrapped ourselves up. So, I mean, you're, 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 I'm just fascinated by this. You're, eight, you're 18, 19, 20, or 19, 20, 21 years old, and you've got 300 employees around the world. I mean, how, are there any, I mean, are you leaning on anyone? I mean, is this all just like you're going instinctively, or do you have a bunch of advisors or a board? Uh, I, I was really lucky to get some great advisors early on. So people who have actually stayed with me from that chapter to the current. There are still advisors in my company today. Like David McBride, for instance, who um, uh, veteran entrepreneurs who run big businesses who seem to find it fascinating to share their life stories were instrumental, actually, in my whole development arc. Um, I think Everyone at that time had no clue what we were doing. Uh, I'd still argue that the startup community has not a complete picture of what we're doing. Um, so we got to make literally every mistake possible, uh, which was awesome. But a lot of us learned, and many of the people who were part of that company have tenured out to be running great things today. So, and, you know, after that, you had this like spate of, of startups that, and mm -hmm. again, it was sort of hard for me to figure out what was what was significant in your timeline, because you're just doing so much. Um, recess, fixed lounge, I mean, is that an actual lounge? Is that, yeah, I've had it? bars and restaurants. Okay. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I think that's, uh, the diversity is really is really interesting. I think so many people are like, I'm, you know, I'm a tech entrepreneur, period. I'm, I've got a friend of mine, I always joke, is like only participating in the future. Um, and there are other businesses out of there. Uh, what's that? That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, well, and, and in the there are other real businesses out there, like a, like a lounge. So, um, so fixed lounge, recess, um, um, your stuff, your day, etc. Like, how do you determine what you want to become involved in, active in, chair, lead, invest, uh, advise? Like, how, what, how are these distinctions made for you? Uh, so when I was young, it was just I have ADD, um, so it was extremely hard to stay focused on any one thing. So I found the distraction of having other businesses useful. I rationalized it that I'd been spending my career back from then all the way through sort of dealing with the SMB. They were the customers, the core customers, as we started to make a product back in the SenseNet day. And if you had a bar and you had a restaurant and you had all these other businesses, it would give you insight into the psyche. Uh, that was more of just a rationale to make my brain feel better about its ADD-ness. Um, I think as I've evolved so over the last maybe 10 years or so, I've been able to be myopically focused on a single business and limit my uh, time as a mentor or, or as an advisor to other companies and try not to have a portfolio of businesses, which was my earlier earlier runs. So of those of those of, of those businesses, you know, I mentioned a few of them, Fix Lounge, you know, Recess, like where do they fit as links in the chain? You know, what what was really significant to you? What was a, a, a an important lesson, you know, that you've taken with um, you know, as a company, I mean not like one lesson, but is there is there one where you're like, yeah, you know, your stuff that really boom, that changed my perspective. Was there was there any one? Yeah, I think they all do. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's hard to reflect back on life and decide where were the chapters that changed everything, right? So uh, I think Your Day was a company that we created, uh, raised a lot of money for, and sold all within a six-month span. What was Your Day? Uh, it was a predecessor to um, Google Calendar. So okay. it allowed businesses to sort of have a calendar they could share. Uh, we hired a supermodel, Letitia Costa, to sort of represent <laughs> it. And she had a, we did a voice call in the morning. She would wake you up. Uh, and we got a lot of users back in the day, so it, it sold out pretty fast. Um, but that taught me a lot of about economics and sort of the financing cycle and how that worked, which I hadn't known before. But it wasn't, that wasn't pivotal in the sense that in the sort of more eight years of spanning inside of a, a SenseNet was really where I got my salt and made my first big batch of mistakes. Well, if that's, if that's what your day was now, it begs the question, what, what was your stuff? 
Uh, your stuff was actually a predecessor to Dropbox, but about a decade in advance. It was right. a, a shared file storage that everybody could access. Okay. Uh, I, I've often been a bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> And is that just not good? <laughs> yeah, I remember Andrew, Andrew Yang, the founder of Venture for America, was on the show, and he introduced me to a saying that I, I think others are familiar with. But you know, what, what, he said something like, "You know, it's it's better to be um, being early is the same thing as being wrong." Uh, and so, uh, I, I guess if, so. if you're early with endurance, it can work out. If you're early without, it, it can be a problem. <laughs> um, <coughs> so. Um, in terms of in terms of your stuff, where did that one end up? If if uh, if you were early on that one, did that one just fizzle, or is it something you uh, that sold? one I actually think fizzled? Uh, I think we actually no no we we reacquired it by one of my other companies, so it fizzled. Um, we just made it seem nicer for everybody involved. Okay, um, but we basically rolled it back into another company. <laughs> and fixed lounge that was a lounge, and did that was that uh, was yep. that something that, that uh, was a passion project? Was it a were you gonna was it gonna be a, a massive scalable lounge across the country? No no no, I had no intention of being scalable. It was uh, I discovered Williamsburg, um, and this was I guess early two thousands, and it seemed to be on a on a trend change. Um, some friends of mine who are very good at spotting trends sort of joined in. We decided we would make a a lounge um, to sort of experience that whole arc. And it was it was a bar which we ended up selling. Um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And to try we tried a lot of different models just to see how they'd work. So we sold coffee and magazines and video games and all sorts of different things. It's interesting. A quick thank you to Aaron Leon and LD Products, the ink and toner experts. They're still offering podcast listeners free shipping and an additional 10% off of their competitive ink and toner prices at ldproducts.com. Some businesses spend up to 50% of their, their office supply budget on ink and toner alone. By using LD brand products, you could cut those costs in half. Their U.S.-based customer service is available seven days a week from their 110,000-square-foot building in California, which is the first Platinum LEED certified building in the new construction commercial category in the United States under the U.S. Green Building Council's stricter 2009 guidelines. You should give them a try. After all, there's an unprecedented lifetime customer satisfaction guarantee on all LD brand cartridges, and you can return a product for a product for any reason. LD Products has been in business for 16 years and still maintains a startup vibe. They ship more than 6 million cartridges a year, so they're doing something right. Use promo code SMART at checkout for 10% off ink and toner. The offer is valid through December 31st, 2015. It excludes OEM, free shipping to the contiguous United States. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So... The next big leap, I'm assuming, is Squarespace. Um, and sure. So, um, like, it, it seems like you you th- was since that sold. Or yeah, ended up selling it to uh, Sun Microsystems. Okay, is, yeah, another story that, uh, altogether. Well, you can if you want to share that story. Then uh, it sounds like you're you're you're, <laughs> you're pondering it. You're on the fence right there. Can you tell us the story of the sale of the sale of SenseNet? Uh, well, so SenseNet became a very big company, uh, and we were very young. Um, we hit a really bad wave in time, right? So we were actually getting ready for our own uh, public filing, but then the market conditions changed dramatically. The the market fell apart, um, which hurt us a lot. And then at, immediately thereafter, nine. 11 surf happened, and we were sort of downtown based. So uh, we had a trifecta of things happening, and we sold. Um, we were able to get pretty much everybody employment and make a success story out of it. But it wasn't a it wasn't a massive win. It was a it was a humbling event, and it took me actually years afterwards of ADD behavior and and micro investing or even real investing to lose my money to you know find my salt again. It was a it was a there's an analogy I think that you know when you go into this boxing ring you you learn a tremendous amount, but you have to give yourself the time to heal, to get back in. You have to find a way to, you know, continue doing reps on the side, but you can't no always jump from one place right to the next. So what was, so, so okay, so what was the, what was that moment where you're like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to go back in the ring? Oh, I thought I was ready right away. So oh, I, I see you're saying, okay. I, I thought I was ready right away. So I'd see a company, I was like, this is awesome, I'll give you some money, let's go for it, let's go for it, let's go for it. And then, you know, I, I just wouldn't do much. <laughs> My brain didn't have the capacity, didn't have the serotonin to actually get things done. Um, and it took me a long time to realize I wasn't doing great at what I, at this new role I decided for myself and, and to find that where I fit best in the ecosystem was as an operator, not as an investor, but as somebody who's sort of on the ground. And that's where I, I got the most joy. And by crafting myself through one startup after another, I started to regenerate generate that fuel, um, which is, you know, I think that you get more powerful and more potent in these many chapters, but it's a story. So 
does that where does that operation start to manifest? Is that is, does that start to when you say when you come to that realization that you're you're a better operator? Is that when you jump back in with Squarespace? No, I did a couple companies before Squarespace that were that you know really taxed me or I should say helped me grow back. So um, I worked at a company called Vitavi, which we ended up selling to OpenText. Um, I was in a lot of different things, as you can see from the extensive. <laughs> <laughs> and each one of them sort of fit a piece in the psychology. Um, Squarespace was uh, certainly the better run I've had. I mean, some of doing pretty good, but it's a better run I've had in the last ten years. So it's more the more notable story. Right. So how did you find your way to Squarespace um, in 2007? I believe you took over as the CEO. Yeah. Um, and this is a company that was like a dorm room startup, uh, and and uh, and you um, you sort of took the reins, or I guess shared the reins with the with the with the founder. Uh, so yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Cantonis, who um, was uh, a CEO of a company that I was on the board of um, and worked for me many many years ago. Uh, he introduced me to a young man named Anthony, who was, uh, uh, <laughs> is, remains to be, and was then absolutely brilliant, but was also very young. So he had built a surprisingly potent business, um, almost out of the dorm room. Like he started in uh, Maryland, and he had moved up to New York, but he was, he didn't have a giant office or anything like that. Um, and you know, I think we hit it off pretty easily in the sense that I could see the chapters that were ahead of him, um, and he had tremendous strength, so it was an easy sort of fit where hopefully I could save him a few of the, uh, the bumps and you know, let him mature as well. So he's, he's, he's t- I think, 25 at the time or something like that when you, when you, when you joined? So it's like kind yeah, of a... Yeah, probably. That's probably, yeah, probably about that. I tried, to, I tried to back 26. into his age when I was doing the research yeah. for the show. Yeah. So, so, so this is kind of like an interesting, you know, um, uh, rule reversal here where you were once the 18-year-old, uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and so you're probably still not that much older than, than him, but um, but tell us about the... Well, in internet years, it's, <laughs> it's quite a long time. Um, yeah, so I, I think that was that was really the magic that we had, right? So um, uh, he, he had all the same inklings that I did at the start, um, you know, and, and all the brilliance and all the excitement and a really good machine behind him. Uh, and I had gone through a lot of these pain stories, and I think it, it, together we were able to, you know, really take that next step. Uh, obviously, it's it's company's taken many steps along this path, but we, um, you know, we evolved quite quickly and grew very fast uh, in unison. So, wh- yeah, where was Squarespace when you when you started there? Uh, it was anchored on uh, the west side of Soho, or a little bit below, maybe in Tribeca. And then we moved over to the middle of Soho, which is pretty much still there. Anthony is, is basically Mr. Captain Soho. Okay. Um, I, I, think, I think I meant that too literally. I, I probably said that too literally. Oh. I, mean, I mean, literally, where as a company was it, like, in terms of, uh, like, you know, user equity, like, like, you know, how many how many employees they have, how many, how much funding did it have, like, just, you know. Uh, no funding at all. So it was it was profitable, and, yeah. uh, all on its own right. Um, it hadn't have any employees. It had, well, maybe that's not true. It had support and some design resources that it had externally. Um, me and then uh, a gentleman named David joined quite quickly, and then uh, it followed very fast that we grew into a, a pretty sizable team. Um, so it was just you and, the, you and the founder at that point? Yeah. Wow. We were the only ones in the office at that point. Wow. But that was only for a month or two, and then another person joined, and then a month or two, and another person joined, and a month, another person joined, and, and so forth and so forth. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that it was that early. Okay. Oh yeah. So okay, so you're, I mean, if, if it's just the two of you, um, how do you divvy up the responsibilities? Like, what what were you what were you being brought in to take to take care of at that point? That so early in the in the in the company's um, you know story. Well, I mean, Anthony's a huge fan of automation, and I've sort of inherited that that uh, love. So much of the company was just handled by the technology. Um, I think when I joined. The, the first cycle I looked at was the idea of us taking on some venture. Um, so we, we did a quick run around the community and people I had worked with in the past to see what the, the deal would look like. And he'd already had offers beforehand. Um, and then the, the next area that was principally for me was helping to generate the team. So build out a team that could sort of help us get to the next stage. Um, so there a lot of folks that, you know, I think we were able to pull in uh, and built, you know, what I think is one of the better tech companies out there still. It's, it's done a very good job at owning its market. What, like... What was the what was the breaking point for Squarespace? You're like, wow, this is really going to be. I mean, obviously you have faith when you're going in, but wow, this is going to be a really big deal. Or was there some inflection point that happened? Yeah, no, that was so. I've been lucky enough to have enough wins amongst all those thirty companies uh, to sort of only hunt for those big whales, and you could see it at the outset, right? So when I first met Anthony, um, this was actually the only way that I think we could have ended up working together. But I would have taken almost any way. Like I think. 
it was it was so clear at that time that the need for people to create content online was uh, overwhelming, and that the tool set to do it was uh, n- not servicing the full market by any stretch of the market at all. WordPress is very small. Um, Carpet just started actually. He was working with a company I worked at beforehand, uh, Vitavi. So it was it was almost at the nascent days. Um, and, and I think that the market's obviously expressed that there has been a huge desire to put things online. That, that's not going away anytime soon. Right, right. And uh, t- I mean, just tell us about the scale. Like, tell us about the ramp. I mean, you were there for you were the CEO for for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about you know just the like it's so hard to capture that kind of growth in in words. But yeah. what are the pain points? Like, wh- how are you? You know, things are growing so quickly. Like, okay, wh- you started the two of you when you left. How many people, how many people worked at, Squ- at Squarespace? Uh, I don't know. I guess 40, 50. Right. I, I, don't, I don't exactly remember. Right. Um, and like the number of accounts went from <laughs> like how many, how many oh yeah, websites yeah. were you we guys were, we were We were multiplying you know, fairly regularly in right. size. And I think that, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it was a very quick ride. We were able to be very efficient in the way the team goes. And, and you know, hyper growth is a challenge that, that many of us have experienced and many of us have experienced in, in several times over. Like we, were, we have faced the same thing inside of Samal right now. The, the biggest thing is just managing the, the volcanic rush of customers. Like when you get the formula right, it gets to be tremendous. Right. Um, and trying to make sure that you adhere to a quality standard and you keep that infrastructure going, that you invest correctly there is, um, they're fantastic problems to have, but they're horrible problems to deal with. Right. Um, and it was it was by no means easy inside of Squarespace. Like the, the attentiveness to making sure that the services were us up was huge in the sense that a big value proposition is always be up. Right. Always be up. Never be down under any circumstances. Um, and that's not an easy thing to achieve. Were there, were there periods where you were down for any, any significant period? Uh, we would literally melt down if we were down for seconds, even if right. portions of the network were down for seconds. So it was literally uh, no single time where we were down for any real extent, which was stunning to the market and to our customers. Like they, Our reliability was a huge factor in getting to be successful, and we had a very big team that was focused on just that. And almost all the architecture and technical decisions were around making that work. And can I count the times uh, where... Me and Anthony were, you know, my mentality is more just build, 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 grow, 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 because that's sort of the, the driving force. And, and he was a, an excellent counterweight in trying to make sure that we always made sure the infrastructure was there and didn't necessarily push ourselves too far ahead of you know what we could actually handle. I remember, I, I, on a personal note, I remember there was a period of like th- of three days where there was some like massive internet outages that hit New York, and it affected our site. And... Uh, I was like, I was just ready to leap, but there was nothing I could do. You know, like it's it's really painful. So I, I understand how like seconds, um, you know, can <laughs> are mega oh, yeah. important when you're when you're one hosting millions of sites. Um, it is critically important. Yeah, because you never know. Like that one that one customer out there could be facing the, the momentary peak of their entire business, and to not be there for them is, uh, you know, you have to act as if you're in that same scenario for everybody at, at all times. Right. Right. What, so why did why did why did Squ- I mean there are it's you know you just mentioned there are, you know many competitors and and you know super you know lots of people going after this after this real estate like why did Squarespace become a winner? Yeah, I think that you know the the truth is in almost all the businesses, at least the ones that I've had the luck to that have succeeded, you are you need to find what your DNA is, right? You need to find out where your core competencies are, um, and in Squarespace. There was just a natural DNA towards design and beauty and to make sure your technology always worked. And that cut through on everything it ever did. So, you know, I think you could look at some of the other people in the market and think that they took a different approach to publishing. But Squarespace always made stunning sites. It always still does. So not to maybe overly promotional for this <laughs> this piece. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's, that is... Uh, something that, you know, you see companies that, that take an approach, and design obviously has been successful for a lot of people, but find something in what they want to do and feel pride in how they make that work, and that shines through forever. Like, even now in Samal, like we, we have such a deep appreciation for data and sort of that SMB that that is a consistent truth that we always adhere to, and having something as an anchor tenant really makes, you know, the rest of the ecosystem work, and it helps you find a home with your customer. It's probably a good spot to say that 
listeners to the show can start their free trial with Squarespace today. No credit card is required at all. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SMART, S-M-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Um, so let's move let's move on from your See, from even your, there, build it beautiful. It's, it's even <laughs> the tag. It's, like, it's, it's through and through. We're going to bring you back to record some of these promos. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, in, in 2011, um, you turned the reins, or you, you, you sh- were sharing the reins, you turned them back over to the founder of Squarespace, and, and you launched Sumall, where you are now. Um, where did the insight for, for Sumall come from? Was it was it derived from 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 anything in particular at Squarespace or, or previously in your career? Well, no, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, we always pick paths that are sort of matured over the decades that we've been in the game. Um, and I've always been a, a, a personal fan of data to a deep degree. Uh, one of the things I've, I, I'm so happy about learning from the bar experience was when I had a bar in... Um, uh, in Manhattan called Recess, I found that there was a mathematical correlation between the amount of limes that were being used and the amount of uh, money being put in the till. So you could determine when you were having a, a, an issue in your theft line, like who was stealing from you, mm. just by watching that ratio go one thing to another, right? So the, the truth is in the data. It's always been the data. Um, and at Squarespace, you know, we were growing at such a fast velocity uh, that seeing the data being so poorly served to us by our partners uh, was a, a clear indication that as someone driving an SMB, it's infuriating that your partners out there collect so much information on your business and you don't get to see any of it, right? So we felt there was an opportunity to free that information um, and that it would be uh, what we've, or I've always hunted for in the sense of finding a big space to play in. So some all you know, allows users to, um, to simplify real-time analytics from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, Tumblr, PayPal, MailChimp, um, and like 42 platforms. I don't want to sound like the guy who like traveled in here by horse, but like, is there such thing as just too much data and the inability to manage like forty-two? I mean, I guess not everyone's using all forty-two, but or maybe some people are. But uh, my my company is not. We're using maybe three or four. I don't know, whatever. Um, but I mean, is it, is it is it is all that data relevant? You know, are you are you trying to cut out irrelevant data? Uh, so there is relevance in the data. You have to. You can't run your life looking at forty different data sets, right? It's never going to work. So what you what you try to do is, and what we try to do for our customers is, is help them understand how that data influences their core metric, which is sort of their audience and their customers. Understanding what pieces are really driving uh, a difference for them. So it might turn out that, you know, one social platform is working great for you, and another one is not. It's hard to see that without having a lot of data feeding in. But once you see that correlation, you can sort of track to the early indicator, right? So if I'm getting a tremendous amount of love on Twitter then that's probably an indication that I'll get more revenue and everything else. So you can see those patterns and then build a model easily in your head of what's going to happen. But one thing we did learn from the SMB is not everybody finds those Lyme equations and that they they need the data to be extremely simplified. So we've been constantly iterating through the years to make it more uh, focused for our customers to sort of find the value out of it. And even beyond us, I think that that's the truth for the ecosystem is that the SMB is probably as, and obviously I believe that they're the entrepreneurial class, they're, they're the most noble people out there. They're trying to change the world with their own ideas and own efforts, um, but their time is getting so stretched as they're competing against these gigantic dragons flying around the space that they need tools that really serve up the answer and make things happen very quickly. So I, I heard that you referred to to Samal as a as a as a as a petri dish. Uh, oh God, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and meaning that I guess it was it was a, it was a a place where you wanted to experiment and possibly solve problems that you had seen and experiment in order to solve problems that you had seen in companies that you've been part of in the past. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think there were you know. Um uh, it's a belief that we have that the best companies have iterated their company structure and not just the idea that they're building, right? So whether it's creating an assembly line to build cars or it's hiring with an IQ test or it's giving people 20% freedom to do their own projects, those inspirations can lead to huge wins overall. So as we approached every company, especially some all, because I think we, we got maybe overly zealous, finding ways to change the way companies work is uh, it helps reinforce your DNA. It helps make you different. It helps make you uh, hopefully better in the end. So, what are some what are some of those big changes? I mean, I know you've got, you, in particular, um, just transparency has been a big deal. And um, but when I ask the question, as opposed to answering it, what are some of the big what are some of the big changes that, uh, or is it some of the, some of the big experiments that you've run at Sumall? Uh, so, you know, we think that, that teams um, work their best when they feel like they own the work they do and when they feel they know what's happening around them, right? The most demoralizing effect on a company is when you, your manager is somebody you don't like, you feel like you're not being 
taken care of correctly, and the work you do doesn't go anywhere. So we we try to engineer a lot of things in the company to prevent those three things from happening. Um, that turned into a policy of transparency, for instance, where we let every employee understand and see the cap table for every other employee. We had let them see the uh, salaries for every other employee. Um, and that gives people a sense of that the company is at least, if not fair uh, you know, to the market, is fair to everybody inside the organization. And that they can easily correct that by conversing about the actual data versus just being disgruntled and taking home a printer or you know, working shorter hours or however many people in the ecosystem say, you know, hey, I'm being screwed, so I'm going to try to fix this some other way. Um, so that sort of helped us, I think, give people the sense of what's happening um, and a higher degree of trust. We changed our team structure so that it's both downward and upward accountable. So our teams are basically voted uh, their own individual leadership. So if you're a team manager with you know three to nine people, those people vote you into your role. So not only are you accountable to the company goals, but you're accountable to making sure that your team actually thinks you're a decent manager, which changes the, the tone entirely. You don't have these managers who are striving for a company goal at the cost of their own teams, um, which is short-term thinking. Uh, how often do those votes take place? Like, how often does leadership change on these teams? Uh, every quarter. Every quarter. They don't necessarily change, but the votes come every quarter. And so how often is there is there a change? Uh, you know, the first few years, it was quite dynamic. Um, now, a lot of the bigger teams are sort of set in their own ways. Um, but there's always there's always moving parts. There are always people changing. I mean, are you looking sometimes saying, like, I don't I don't like that change. Like, I don't want that change to happen. I know that person's good. It's just because maybe he's he or she is tougher on her team or anything like that. I mean, are, are those moments occurring? And All the time. Yeah. All the time. And I've been totally wrong. Which yeah. is the interesting thing, right? So there's sometimes I think somebody will be a fantastic manager, and you know they are they are on the road to becoming one, but this is not the the time for them to do it. Um, and there have been times where I thought someone had no no background. You would never, from a resume, put them into that role, and they've stepped up and done an amazing job. So it's. I think that the the general process by which people select their leadership is almost true to the Peter principle, right? It's like it isn't necessarily a meritocracy. It isn't always based on the right merits. It's based on sort of ethereal metrics. Um, in this system, it self-corrects. So if someone sucks, that's not even on my job to fix. The team itself fixes itself. It's so, brilliant. So in the, in the long run, you feel like it does. It all it it, oh, it always works itself out. You know the the. Yeah, you might have to suffer somebody for a while, and the team might have to suffer somebody for a while. But even in that course, they're basically training one of their team members to be a more valuable team member. If he doesn't become a leader in the next cycle, he appreciates the dynamics and the stress of the leader, so he's much more supportive and works much more you know, hand-in-hand. Hand. Like, it's, it's a great way to season your team. It's a great way not to have to fire him because you basically promote him to be a VP and now it doesn't work and he's not going to go back and you have to kick him out. Like, it, it creates a, a stronger uh, learning curve for your organization and more retention because people fit in wherever they best fit. They can try and actually decide, which has happened, like, hell, this is a lot of work. Like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna right. do this. I prefer doing the job I was doing beforehand. I, I very rarely digress from someone's personal script on the show. This might be the first time, actually. But, I mean, the, the holacracy at Zappos. Zappos has been in the news a lot, yep. which which seems like it's, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but it seems like it's it's somewhat of what you're doing, but the management <laughs> doesn't exist at all. We're, we're opposed yeah. to the the kind of revoting regularly. And any, I'm just curious, any thoughts on that structure at all? Do you think that can work? Yeah. So we, we you know, when we set out on our path, Holacracy was just in its first campaigning phase, and we looked at it extremely closely because we thought maybe this was a, a great thing to embrace. Uh, we found a lot of fault in the 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 fullness of its thinking, so we decided to basically build our own model. I'm really nervous now that holacracies run into trouble, that people will will steer away from the experiments um, and think that they all bunch together. Because at the end of the day, you know, there needs to be a better way for people to work. The fact that most humans don't like their jobs is a testament that the system does not work, right? There's no reason. Maybe the work isn't fun, but that doesn't mean the environment can't be positive and people can't be growing and learning faster. So a new structure is certainly potent and powerful and will help companies succeed and shouldn't just be cast away because one model didn't work. And we've, you know, we've learned a lot. The way our model works has changed a lot. We've had to incorporate many more structures that weren't there initially just in order to prop up as we scale through the organization. Has, has Sumall exported this model to any other, any other companies? Yeah, I, I think that that's one of our most popular dinnertime conversations is every time we get together with Eric and other CEOs is we, we talk about you know, our Petri dish of experiments and we see lots of people trying to incorporate aspects of it in the way they build their model. It's also, I think, you know, you when you start a company, you want to find out what is what is the truth you want to live. What is what do you bring to the table as you know your the first founders? And 
if you can embody that in a structure, that is fantastic because then it's true to yourself and, and has a better chance. So it's, I think the, the outright adoption of existing models is a little at risk. The sort of, you know, uh, Bruce Lee style of sort of putting things together and finding out what works for you is, is probably more productive. And, and the, the, the part you mentioned earlier, the transparency and the everyone's got, you know, knows what each other make and what the cap table looks like, et cetera. What um, does that wear off on people? Like, did you, can you, I, I think I read that it's all in one folder. People, anyone can access it. Yep. Do you notice the clicks going down over time? Like after, after, after sort of becoming aware of it, is it something that people check more frequently or less frequently? Uh, um, I, well, so I don't, we don't watch the, tr the clicks. Uh, <laughs> a little, uh, I figure you're a data guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. But we're transparent, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the thing that's been interesting is it is actually much more uh, anticlimactic than folks would think. So right. there's definitely a sense of like, oh, let's look. Uh, okay. You know, and there, there are team members I often talk to when we're talking about the way the organization's going or somebody moved up, and then they reference, like, oh, I haven't looked at all or I haven't looked in months or I have no idea what that person's making, which I always find to be curious because you'd think if it's there that people would be really fixated on it. And that's right. to say that there aren't people who probably check it quite regularly. Right. Um, but as an organization, I think w what it does is it, it at least allows you not to worry about that vector and that you have trust that there is enough transparency that if something really strange happened, if we went and hired somebody at you know, 300,000, then that wouldn't be allowed to persist in the company. Right? If we were abusing a minority group because we are evil, then that wouldn't be allowed to survive because the rest of the team would see it. So right. at least it gives people a sense of what's actually happening. They may not have to check it every day, but they know that that's not a, a concern in the company that they need to worry about. And, and then you also have sort of a bit of an unorthodox approach to, to hiring, uh, or, or mm -hmm. atypical, I don't want to call it unorthodox, yeah. um, uh, where, I mean, tell me about it, where, where someone sort of comes on for an extended interview for a longer period of time, and, and I think only about 65% of the people make it? Is that is that what I read? Yeah, a little bit more than that. So 77% make it through. Um, we try to hire with the absolute best aspiration that it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, we do everything we can to help them out on the back end of that curve. Um, I think that what happens is you can't guess these fits right all the time. You cannot... 100% predict who's going to work great in your company for a variety of reasons. So you do your best in the interview process. The way it works in a normal company is that person comes on. Uh, my experience has been you know it's wrong. Someone knows it's wrong. Either the employee knows it's wrong, like this is really not, I'm not doing anything that's valuable, like something's happening, or the team knows it's wrong. But because you have no structure in place, you you know assign to the fact that you onboarded them incorrectly, or that project wasn't spec'd right, or let's give them another month. And they end up stretching out for six months with your company, at which point you're finally like, okay, we've given this person enough rope to hang themselves, it's time to get rid of her, right? So, or make that change. I think if you if you say up front, like, listen, we're going to evaluate each other very closely in 45 days. We're going to we're going to have meetings every 15 days and talk about what you feel we're missing, and we'll talk about what we feel we're missing, so we can make course corrections really quickly. And if at the end of it we're feeling like we're not a right fit, let's figure out how to handle it better. It does less damage to the candidate's resume. They didn't all of a sudden this weird six-month stint at some all. Mm -hmm. they, they can basically just go off their last five years at Google and say, yeah, I'm in the market. And it's it saves both sides a tremendous amount of pain and time. It's a lot more work because you have to do those meetings. You have to really look at somebody and you have to talk to them all the time and say, okay, let's. how is this really working? Um, but the net of it, I think you end up in a better place. There, there are problems with it, for sure. Um, and there definitely are restrictions on the kind of people you'd be able to onboard. But it creates a more... Uh, a, a better team, a team that you know sits better with itself. In, in a place where culture is is clearly so important, and and there's a real, there's some real values underlying you know what you're trying to do. Um, I, I just you went through an acquisition of you purchased 20 feet, and I don't know how many people were were on the 20 feet team when they, how many people were on the 20 feet team. Uh, there were a bunch of people. We didn't actually onboard any of the people. Okay. Um, we did another acquisition a little while ago for a company called Flutter, which is a couple months ago. Okay. Um, when I built my first company, we did a ton of acquisitions. So we bought companies left, right, and center because money seemed easy and we were right. on a, a war path. Um, that is very hard on a culture. Right. Uh, That's where I was going. So, 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 <laughs> so, we're, so we're tell me more, how you... We're much you more sensitive about it now. Right. Um, back then, I think that, you know... I don't, I'm not an expert in this by any means. There are people who have gotten much better at doing acquisitions, but you have to, if you're a culturally oriented organization, either you have to design yourself to be an acquisition machine and find a way to embrace those new cultures, or I would strongly discourage the idea of team onboarding. It's, it's, it is, uh, it's dangerous. So, so how did you navigate the, I guess, the latter acquisition where you did take some, you did keep some people we, on the we team? We try to keep the, try to take on as few people as possible, and if it's a small enough group, then you can sort of, you know, you can onboard your DNA more onto them, and, and you make sure in part of the acquisition that you're finding people that you like, and, you know, the human beings that you want to spend your time with. 
the Sunday rule, right? If they're in the office on Sunday, would you still come in or would you steer <laughs> away kind of thing? So one interesting difference between Squarespace and Summall uh, is that Squarespace had a revenue model from, from close to day one or from day one, if I recall. Very close to the beginning, yeah. And Summall um, has sort of taken a user acquisition approach from, from what I can tell. Yep. Um, just tell me about the different f- philosophy between between those two approaches and different times, different companies, and why you sort of didn't say like revenue day one here. If that's if it sort of it, it did, it seems to have worked in the past. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a grass is greener. Like we had many different conversations at the table at Squarespace with how you know we were onboarding so many customers that if we were free, we would truly be able to consolidate the market. So it was it was not. You know, it was one of those, what if? What if we had taken that other route? And when we built Samal, we felt that the right strategy was to acquire the market, was to get the SMBs. And we actually have a half million of them now, so that strategy has worked for acquiring it, but it it changes the path so deeply that we didn't foresee, you know, how much of a different road it actually turns into. So it's, they are uh, entirely different ways to approach the same kind of problem. Um, and have huge advantages and disadvantages on both sides, right? So we at Samal have a massive footprint and a huge marketing machine, but it's always a question with how much we're going to be able to convert that into revenue when the, the day comes that we really need to switch that flip over, right? And we're much more dependent on our venture partners and the ecosystem to survive. Whereas for Squarespace, it was a, a, a revenue machine all the way through, but it didn't necessarily, it couldn't leap and bound in the acquisition model because it didn't have that sort of free gateway door. So it, it's a different different handcuffs. Right, right. And I'm, I've got to assume there's massive pressure. Maybe, I'm, I don't know why am I assuming that. Is there pressure <laughs> Is there pressure on you to flip the revenue switch now? Oh, there always has been, right? So yeah. that was that was a challenging sell from the very first seed investors all the way now. Like, you have, you clearly have a lot of customers who are very engaged. Why don't you make them pay you a lot of money? So you're talking about things that you maybe imagined or didn't, didn't imagine for the company. Do you imagine you're, that someone was going to lead you to the White House? And, 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 what, <laughs> no. and what brought you there? <laughs> Um, that it was a lot of uh, a lot of fun experiences that have come out of it. I think that the the petri dish has really been helpful for us creating a conversation on a larger stage. Um, so our times at the White House has been a lot about how small businesses work, and that's I think ties into the longer history I've had. But it's certainly also in the sense of can business take on more ownership for equity in the workforce? Is it not just the government's responsibility to f- enforce pay equity, but where does company responsibility lie? And terribly, there are not a lot of companies that are actively trying to experiment and find ways to increase, you know, equity in the organization. Um, we definitely have been very loud and proud about the fact that maybe transparency isn't a silver bullet, but it makes it extremely hard for evil to persist in an environment. And treating women and minorities poorly is very hard when you have it all laid out in one space. Um, so I think that the uh, our invitation, our conversations have all been about how can you know corporate America start to embrace more transparency as a way to defend against the problems that you know plague us. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> so it was it lots w- of fun. Yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I imagine. Um, uh, so, like you know, entrepreneurship is this is this crazy roller coaster, and you were brought here by by our our mutual friend, you know, Eric Schrader. <laughs> and I'm just curious, you know, you've just you're you've done so many of these roller coasters. Like, like what keeps you sane aside from a good Venwise group? What what <laughs> what you know? How do you how do you deal with all the? I, I still I'm 12 years into one business, and I can still live a revenue like three days of bad revenue or three days of good revenue. So personally, and you actually kind of talked about the beginning about how how closely you identify yourself and your business, and sometimes I'm like, wait, I'm not my business. I should be able to like come. I should be able to like be happy on a day where there isn't, you know, where we have like a bad revenue day. I mean, it's a day. But anyway, before I, I'll take myself off the psychiatrist couch. I'm really good at no, long-winded no, go, 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 questions. Go, 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 go. Yeah, can you ask me a few <laughs> questions and I'll just uh, I'll just sit back and answer them by myself. Um, so uh, so you know, how like what kind of support do you have? Where do you find the strength to con- to continue on rough days? What are your highs like, etc.? That's uh, the longest question I've ever asked in the history of the show. That's <laughs> near the end. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I think everyone has different yeah. tools to deal with this lifestyle. Um, I think for me, uh, the Venwise group and all those services are, are hugely supportive to being alone as an entrepreneur because you know we are actually, it may not be visible, but we are actually sharing the same seas. We're all on the same boats and we are jumping from boat to boat and living a career together. It's just in different chapters. Sometimes people think it's just that one little chapter that they're in, but it really expands across it. Um, the strength that I've leaned on pretty much all the way through is 
is that almost the beginning of the interview where you talk about the idea that startups is a way to grow. So the hard times, that bad day in revenue, is a fantastic facility for you to become more of a person. And if you look at your life, you know, in those chapters where you've maybe been consistent, where things have been even, where nothing has changed, time feels different, right? Like that, you could spend 10 years and it feels like one little chapter of your life and you spend a year, you know, backpacking or, or struggling as a startup and it feels like 10 years of your life, right? So I don't think life is about the median. I think it's about in taking that roller coaster and feeling the edges of your emotions and, and feeling the pressure of, oh my God, I had three days of bad revenue. I'm going to be dead in a week. I can't support <laughs> my staff. To like, oh my God, I made an extra. Like that is, it may be tough on the system, but if you take the perspective that that is strengthening you, that is making you different and better, um, you almost, you look forward more towards the peaks than you do the medium. Like the things where I really struggle are when you're just sailing and everything's working and everything's fine. Um, it's when you're in that hyper growth curve and you could blow it all, but you could get to the top of the mountain or things aren't working and you might just fall off the cliff and you've got to do everything you can to save it because it's in those moments that you evolve and you remember them. Like you can, you can crawl back as probably you can to every bad three days of revenue in the last 12 years. There's some sort of like, I remember seeing that restaurant and suffering oh. it. Like it's, it, it fills your life. Yeah, I basically ruined a family vacation this summer by stressing for three days. So, there but one thing I did learn was I actually shut off my, my um, I took another brief vacation. I actually shut off revenue. I was like, I'm just, I just, it just doesn't matter. Why am I looking at this and driving myself crazy? So there, there can be growth, uh, and personal and, growth. And, and tricks know. to uh, <laughs> preserve our psyches. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Last question, because you, I mean, SenseNet, you know, you, you, we already talked at the beginning, you know, kind of, um, I guess, you know, had ran into trouble when 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 the bubble burst last time, and oh yeah, um, and <sighs> you know, now we're we've got shivers running down your spine already, and now we're you know we're kind of. It, some of the air is coming out at, 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 of, of what potentially could be a bubble right now. Um, you know, I, I guess, is this different? Are there different worries for you right now? Are you, are you, is there anything you're taking from, from 2001 and applying it now and saying, I better do this now in preparation if things do continue to, to, to slide a little in the tech world? Uh, so, you know, uh, well, first off, it's, it's a very different cycle than it was back then. That was a catastrophic slide, and I think that the, we've gone through some corrections since, and they've been easier to, to survive. Um, I think that anyone who's gone through those arcs is much more cash conservative, so we've always run a more disciplined business. Like, we don't have the extravagances that can really hurt a company, um, which I think is just a general through cut. And the, the inverse is, you know, if you look back at time, some of the very best companies that we all depend on, whether it's Google or whatnot, were built in those down cycle economies. So, it, it, it may not be as easy to get financing, but sometimes that it makes you focus better on your business, right? So they're not, it isn't a tragedy that we all have to go, you know, sit on the beach for five years. It's an opportunity to really focus and be strong and, and it's the other side of that curve. So I don't personally fear those periods. I think that they are times where you build slightly differently. You may use different tools, you may depend on uh, economics and venture and whatnot differently, but it's still a great time to build. Great optimistic note to finish on. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks so much. I uh, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate you being here uh, and telling us the story of your amazing journey through entrepreneurship from uh, from the age of eighteen. That's just un or even even younger potentially. Uh, that's 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 amazing. Um, and of course, we're here for Venture for America, uh, which is currently recruiting the next cohort of college graduates to join its fellow class of two thousand sixteen. If you are a bright, enterprising, driven, and gritty future entrepreneur, apply to become a fellow at VentureForAmerica.org slash apply. The next application deadline is November 30th, so it seems like it's not that far away, but start looking to it and start your application now. Visit VentureForAmerica.org slash apply for additional application deadlines and information about the application and selection process. Thanks so much for being here and uh, for joining us, and uh, join us next time for another interesting biographical podcast. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.